Hi, I'm Sam Quentin, founder of Sinopa Publishing and co-creator of Reign of Ages. And you can find Reign of Ages on Kickstarter uh, with Reign of Ages issue one. And you're listening to Two Geeks Talk. Hey, this is Nick Capone, uh, artist and colorist of Sinopa Publishing and also co-creator of Reign of Ages. You can find Reign of Ages on Kickstarter on the Projects We Love section at the moment. Uh, and you're watching Two Geeks Talking. Good morning, afternoon, evening, everyone. Two Geeks Talking is an entertainment industry interview show where we interview the creative people from the comic, film, TV, movie, and video game industry. And I'm your host, Kurt Sasso. We are joined today by two very talented individuals. One has been on the show in the past, which will be premiering in March of 2022. The other is a brand new first timer on Two Geeks Talking and first time overall when it comes to being on a podcast. So I feel super duper excited about that here. We are joined today by the ever talented duo of Sam Quinton and Nick Capone from Reign of Ages and of course from Sinopa Publishing. How are you guys doing today? I'm having a fantastic day, Kurt. Thanks for having us on today. Yeah. Man. Can't complain. Thank you so much. Yeah, this is this is an honor. I'm glad to experience my first appearance on a podcast uh, with you and I'm excited. <laughs> well, I'll try not to set the bar too high here, but uh, I will be asking some interesting questions overall. But for those that don't know anything about Reign of Ages from Sinopa Publishing, tell us what it's all about. Well, Reign of Ages is our first bad girl genre uh, fantasy adventure comic from Sonopa Publishing. It is the story of an elf mystic warrior uh, of an ancient order that once defended the now fallen and defunct elven empire. And through events that transpire in this first issue, uh, she basically misses the fall of the empire and for want of a better word without giving too much away, awakens from a curse by uh, some adventurers bring her into the current era of the fantasy world that she uh, lives in. Now, this is actually set in the uh, setting material that we use for our tarot adventure role-playing game uh, adventure series. So this uh, has uh, you know three adventure books behind it for the setting. And then, of course, we'll be expanding setting material and helping people to discover the world through the comic, as well as you know have that thrill of adventure uh, and excitement as they uh, discover new things through Rain's eyes. High fantasy is always a fun genre to look at, and it's amazing to see you know this type of story. And I, I like I said uh, earlier before the show started, love the art. the uh, The concept sounds interesting. I, I love the you know past hero going to the future, so to speak. Those are always fun genres. But Nick, though, when you first saw the script for this series what did you think of it it was my first time seeing sam on the writing end usually prior to that whenever i worked on a sonopa book it was either the part of you know adding additional art my first big break into sonopa i i did border art so i never really worked directly on the script this is my first time seeing sam's writing it was really good you know I approached Sam with this idea. I kind of gave him full control on the writing. I really love the idea. Things happen in this first issue, which I don't want to give away. We're introduced to this like first big boss of a character. Really been a fun ride throughout. And Sam is very to the point with his writing. And I, and I personally like that. 
like I do like build up and I do like sometimes like a slow burn, but sometimes due to the fact, the sake of timing and, you know, pacing of a story, I think sometimes being to the point is very crucial. And I think Sam executes that really well. And the script is very clear, which I like. There's not like a moment where to like scratch my head, talk to Sam and then talk to the editor, Alexia Vilhausen. There was never a point that I was stumped. It's been a good, good ride so far. Smooth ride, no, no turbulence. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's been really fun. Well, looking at the art style here, uh, as the artist of this particular, you know, series though, when you were putting this together, did you have like the main character already thought up or was it something that kind of gradually evolved as you started working on this project? So initially I came up with a few sketches, uh, sent them Sam's way. Ideally I did, I want to say three preliminary sketches of Rain of how I wanted to emulate the character. A big inspiration to the character itself, the design of it. I kind of combined Tarna from Heavy Metal and mixed with a little like splash of Lady Death. I'm a huge Lady Death fan, a huge Coffin Comics fan. So uh, ideally, that's why I pitched this idea to Sam. I'm like, I wanted a Sinopa take on the bad girl comic genre. And then I've been a very huge fan of the Hernandez brothers, uh, Love and Rockets, the, the real they kind of pioneered the way for indie comics back in the 80s. At first glance, people kind of bat their eye when they hear me say that because two of those things go together better than the other. When they hear that I wanted more of an indie flair to this, it, it kind of intrigued them a little bit. And I kind of implemented that when it came to designing Rain, where I wanted those elements of a, a 90s seductive looking character, but equally as badass and empowering, but I wanted that stylistic flair to it when I uh, came down to drawing it. So I wanted to incorporate the, the simplicity of the Hernandez brothers and that indie comic kind of flair meets the, you know, the very over the top looking character design. And you're gonna notice that when you see even more of the pages, like especially designing some of the elves I was just putting spikes on everything, man. I don't know why, but I just kept putting spikes. When in doubt, like Rob Liefeld always had the pouches, that whole pouch habit. For me, it's spikes. So when in doubt, add some spikes on their costume and boom. It, it sounds like it was a Mad Max inspired uh, yeah. viewpoint there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it, it, a little bit. Um, I wanted, I, I, I actually don't know like what, I, I think I was, in the middle, like around the time when I started doing the designs, I was really revisiting a lot of like Michael Turner's work and Witchblade mm. and all that stuff. And you know how 90s comics were. They have like ridiculous parts of costumes that you don't even know how makes sense. And I think that birthed the idea of having spikes all over these characters. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 but like Sam, Sam liked the designs. There was a little, like maybe one or two little tweaks I did that he wanted, but mm -hmm. overall he seemed pretty, pretty pleased. So I, I, I was very happy to hear that. The first few trials of drawing rain were a little like, I was just getting weirdly annoyed because I'm like, I'm not 
getting results that I wanted. It was like at the level where, I, do I think Rain looked too reserved or too, uh, in D&D terms, like paladin-y? Uh, initially, my design for uh, Rain had like a lot of like robes involved. I, I kind of opened it up a little bit where there's more of a warrior aspect to it, but also like a little bit of like a mystical aspect as well because mm. she's also a magic user. And I think the biggest challenge was finding balance in that like do i make her look too stoic and too armored like a warrior do i make her a little more mystical and let like it was all about finding balance when it came to design the characters specifically rain well then sam looking at this genre of of the bad girl genre then and we we've heard the influences or inspirations for this particular genre Mm -hmm. now what was it about this world that you decided to expand upon this bad bad girl genre the world setting on this as a whole was actually originally constructed all the way back in 2002 came home from a a job assignment in my old career i had been injured specifically i'd been i'd been stabbed i was home recovering my buddies came over and they went to play D and we're like all right so um, i said i'll run and i just started writing and i wrote a preliminary low-level adventure thing with this thumbnail of a, of a setting and then we ended up playing for 11 days straight <laughs> we would stop to sleep stop to eat you know people were showering i'm sure i know i was at least once a day that kind of thing we weren't completely disgusting but we got into this this vibe on this this impromptu campaign that just launched itself and built a lot of the world as they explored it. Uh, so it was a lot of free writing. When my two friends both ended up joining the Navy, they actually both took uh, copies of the campaign notes with them. So uh, my buddy Steve, who was a submariner, uh, would actually run a game while he was on submarines. And so he ended up leaving copies of the setting with other submariners because you know sometimes you change change boats and whatnot my other my other buddy he was a linguist in hawaii and so as people rotated in out of his station his his group there would ebb and flow and when people would leave they would take copies as well and so basically this setting kind of grew out into the navy over the course of about five years whenever they would come home we would pick up and play again so when i started writing the tarot adventures I took a, a part of it that I hadn't really done much with and plopped uh, Glenfollow into that because the, the whole thing's designed to be migrated to any, any worldview and used uh, a lot of the um, lore from that first campaign since they were sharing space to really take advantage of, of years worth of feedback and critique and experience and play to utilize that so when nick approached i'm like you know we have a few different ideas that we batted around for about 20 minutes and i'm like we can put this in the tarot adventures we've got the setting i own the trademark we can use this no problem we've got a lot of stuff we can do with this but nick has done a lot of work with me in the past and so when nick came to me and said hey i want to do a comic and he wanted me to write i mean to me that's like okay i get to write with nick capone i can't say no to that I mean, you, you just can't because the man's remarkably skillful, incredibly talented. He's showing himself in his debut as the principal line artist in this work. Aside from that, he's also a beautiful colorist and teaches at the Kubert School. His resume is as long as my arm. And so bringing the story into this setting 
was a comfortable place for me to write from and gave me a lot of toys I could play with, not just for the first issue and that first three issue kind of uh, origin story arc, but for subsequent issues, not just like the next arc, which we already know who our, our main villain is starting from issue four, but then also reaching into the lore from the other campaigns and from feedback from, you know, different people who've played in this sandbox so that we can uh, bring some really interesting, intriguing stories, introduce some characters who were, in some instances, actually player characters from, you know, people who were serving in the Navy or who were friends of mine playing at home, things like that. And so we've just got a, a tremendous wealth of resources to play with. So, uh, Nick, looking at, as a as a teacher at the Kubert School, Kubert uh, School, I should say, um, what exactly has that school provided, not only from a professional standpoint, but from a personal standpoint, from your art creativity side? From both a student and an instructor's perspective, because I've, I've, I've been to this school since I was 11. I was exposed <laughs> to this school at a very young age, and it weirdly came full circle to the point now where I you know, attended there uh, and now teaching there. But I think the biggest thing that I notice is just the amount of talent that you're exposed to. What you would notice is that everyone approaches things differently. Certain fundamentals, there's a right and wrong way to do it, but we were always taught you got to know the rules before you break them. I tried implementing that in both my teachings and also even with my own art. There are artists at the school who draw a lot more standard, mainstream-looking comic style. And then there's artists I really uh, admired who draw more cartoony and more uh, exaggerated on the, the, the human form. And I, I think it's more so personal preference at this point because there's, without a doubt, the, the, the team at the Kubert School has been nothing but incredibly... They're legends. Like, you have the, like Tom Mandrake, you have Jan Dersima, you have... Adam and Andy Kubert I had as instructors have a huge array of talent in that school. And weirdly enough, even though I'd say that, you know, some students, myself included, we pick up things we want to pick up stylistically, each student, each instructor always had something to bring to the table and something to learn from. So I think that's the most, uh, from my experience, the, the most memorable thing I'd say about the school, how it kind of morphed me into the artist today. Like growing up, I've been a huge fan of Anthony Marquez and Fernando Ruiz. They kind of impacted me in a way where I wanted to draw like them. And then at a certain point, I kind of became even a little more studious and I wanted to know who inspired them. So uh, it's very steer clear. If you're familiar with Anthony Marquez, it's very steer clear that a big inspiration to him is Darwin Cook. And so I looked into Darwin Cook's work and he, he's incredible. He's one of my uh, go-to artists. And then Fernando obviously worked on the legendary Dan DiCarlo of Archie Comics, uh, may he rest in, rest in peace. Uh, he, he left such a huge legacy to everyone. He impacted Fernando, me, Dan Parent, like all these, all these instructors at the school. But I, I looked into their inspirations. And then I kind of, I don't want to say it like a weird hippie way where, like, oh, I found myself. But like, I, I definitely found my home when it came to like my art style. So I definitely think that's what I really got out of the school in regards to my artistic 
drive and my my style and the way I draw. Like it's just all now of just exposure to different styles and all very incredible styles in their own rights. You know, what was the hardest scene for you, not only to write, but what was the hardest scene for you to draw? I think it was more so me going the extra mile. <laughs> like uh, there was a scene where uh, uh, a, a character, I can't, I don't, I, I don't think I can mention it, right, Sam? Is I, it, the, is it the, the head scene with the... No, 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 it was before that. Okay. But basically a character gets impaled. And uh, I really wanted to exaggerate that, especially uh, at the school, we learned a lot about layouts, compositions, how to tell a story, how to really, you know, push a, push a scene. And there was like one scene where I did like a complete upshot and it was like very dramatic looking. And I think Sam just said in the script, oh yeah, this character stabs this character. But I literally wanted to go the extra mile and really show that. I think that was the hardest page I had to do. I think throughout the book, though, the challenge I faced, there's like a fine line of being simplistic, but also very detail-specific. I don't skimp out on the backgrounds for the sake of the style, so it doesn't look too contrasted. I have to like dial it back a little bit so it, it suits the story and the style a lot better. But overall, I think that specific page was definitely the hardest part of the book so far. It was just more so of like how much I wanted to push this whole scene. There was like a few times throughout the book where we imply, like as you saw in the first couple few pages, there's violence in this book. There were uh, degrees of me questioning how far can we go. <laughs> and I remember calling Sam one day and I was like, instead of doing this in this panel, can I do something even gorier and like pretty much dismember a uh, the foes that she was fighting and Sam was like you know what I trust your judgment like I, I ran it through him I ran through our editor overall I wanted to push myself on this specifically since it's my first credited book as the lead artist for the sequentials I really wanted to leave a good impression I didn't want to skimp out on a lot of things because before that I've been coloring a lot I've been coloring for four years but whenever I was hired to do something aside from coloring, just drawing, it was mostly on the pinup side, very like, you know, stoic poses, comfortable poses. But this book really pushed me to get out of that box, get out of that little comfort zone. So I think that was a challenge in its own right, but more of a positive challenge because I, you know, I feel like I learned so much on this book. And you know, what people don't realize with artists is like, we're learning every day. Every project we work on, we're learning. It's not like you reach a certain point, you're like, all right, I'm permanently good. I'm never going to draw like a lackluster thing. No, like I think every, I think you're doing something wrong if you're not learning from every project you do. And this is only issue one. So like Rain has been nothing but a huge learning experience. I'm more confident drawing fight scenes now, which is really surprisingly great for like beginner artists specifically they would always approach me saying their biggest fear was drawing cars uh when i was a student my biggest fear was drawing fight scenes because i was just like getting flustered and because there's so many ways you could do it there was a huge learning curve 
Then from a, from a writing perspective there, uh, Sam, specifically when it came to, uh, obviously you've already built the world out as you've already described it previously. Right. Was there anything that maybe from a, a writing standpoint that you got stuck on or that you collaboratively worked on with Nick to kind of maybe bridge a, a, a chasm that occurred? Yeah, actually our, the very first draft of the, the script I thought was was pretty good and everyone liked it but the there was a problem with the fact that we were flashing back between where we were at in time and we were looking at you know rain in the the time of the ancient empire before its fall when she was um conducting some stuff that you'll see in this book and then going forward with what happened uh, when she was awakened and the problem with that was is that in in the span of a book as big as this is you know, we've got 29 narrative pages. It was a concern that we were going to lose the reader in the transitions. So the, the second draft of it required a revision that established just a linear timeline for the story so that the passage of time was not confusing. And so thankfully we had, you know, Alexia and, and Nick when I came back with the re revision on that, the only thing we changed after that was... Splash pages. We changed the splash pages, yeah. I think we had that one panel change that became the, the splash page in the book with that. I think that was really it. I mean, we didn't really change anything in the narrative that much. Which is great, because I mean, I love the fact that you've, you know, I, I want to read the story. I can't wait to see specifically, you know, how this evolves from volume one to volume three. And I'm sure you're going to do more after that oh, yeah. as well, too, here for sure. Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to then this particular collaboration, obviously, from what I'm hearing, it sounds like you both have worked extremely closely together and, and well together. Was there any, any point where story point you wanted to explore needed to be done in volume one that couldn't be put off? No, I mean, Nick and I have a, a working relationship very similar to my relationship with Alexia Veldhausen. When I'm writing, I try not to tread on the artist's interpretation of scenes. If there are some required elements that are going to be hearkened back to in subsequent issues, I make sure that that's noted as a needed element and we'll talk about, you know, why. And, and Nick and I had a conversation on that with regard to the sword in question, actually. I think that was the one big one we probably spent, what, 15, 20 minutes going over the significance yeah. of that. Yeah. While that sounds really, really minor, it really comes into play in a big fight scene in this issue. So it's really important between the distinction between weapons, as weird as that sounds, between Rain and her allies. And Nick has done a wonderful job to make sure that that's consistent with the flow of the sequentials. And of course, you know, Alexia has been very attentive to that as well uh, with the edits to make sure that we hadn't had anything that was going to, you know, maybe trip up the readers. We want to make it easy to be immersive. And one of the things about that as a writer is you've, you, if you have a big ego, you need to let it go. You need to be able to accept criticism. And sometimes you have to, you know, defend the position, right? If it's something that's critical to your storyline, but you need to be able to defend it reasonably and say, well, this is why we have this here. You know? So for example, um, in one particular scene, we had giant, giant trees, you know, which are a pain for the background for the artist. you know, big, big, huge trees and our, our characters, right. And a structure. And then subsequently we have a structure image that doesn't have those trees. 
and the structure has changed slightly due to the passage of time. We're not going to give away too much. And the, the key issue that was basically to help illustrate stuff that had changed so dramatically for our protagonists. Handing that information over when you put it in the script, if it's not, if you look at it and like, wait, eight pages ago, there were a lot of trees here. Yes, well, now it's 300 years later and this, this, and this has happened. That kind of thing, once you have uh, everyone on the same page in the story, my recommendation is keep hands off the art. Let the artist take their their mental image, their their feeling for the the story for each panel and put that description in in the visual medium. Because if, if you're the writer and not the artist, don't try to be the artist. <laughs> don't don't try to micromanage that. That's that's not a good thing. Micromanaging for anything really generally doesn't work out well. And and that too, I think that's easy to do. When you're working with people who you have a strong professional relationship with, who you have a lot of respect for, people who know the questions that they need to ask in order to clarify points that, you know, for those blanks they need to fill in as they're doing things. And we see that with, with Nick literally every time I've ever worked with him. And Alexia also as well. In fact, most of the, I would say that all the Kubert grads that we've, uh, We've hired for Sonopa projects. They've been really, really good about asking the right question. JP Buzio, who did a uh, line art for an, uh, an art print piece that we then turned into the uh, very, very rare uh, third cover, one of the Virgin variants that's only going to see a few hundred uh, copies printed. Um, he had uh, very good questions as well and led to an absolutely magnificent piece uh, that uh, people are really, really loving being able to know that you don't know everything, ask questions. And then when people ask questions, give, you know, the answers that they need and respect the fact that they're asking because they need to know, you know, I think too often people get short with other folks when they're asking questions that from you, because it's in your head and it's living in your mind space. I think for a lot of writers, the problem is, is you just presume that they see the same thing in their heads that you do. And that is absolutely not the case. You have to open your ears and listen and speak clearly, convey what your, what your concept is. God, working with these guys makes that so easy. I mean, it, it really is. As a writer, this is such a great team to work with. You know, I, I just I can't say enough about them. They've done a fantastic job with it. The writing work has, has, is easier for the fact that I get to work with such fantastic professionals. From a, a, an artist's perspective here, Nick, mm -hmm. the visual language of art is ever-inclusive in a variety of different genres and mediums and everything along that line. Yes. When was the first time that you learned that this visual medium had power? Oh, God. Uh, wow. I, I was probably just like a young age. Like for something to like draw me in that much, like I grew up, and weirdly enough, uh, specifically this genre of comics, like, I remember, oh, my God, I had to be, like, nine or ten. I, I think it's just more so the art. It's not, it's not like, fine art where very minimal or you can get away with doing less. And, and not, that's not, like, a jab at fine artists because they do a lot of work. But, like, it's just a different way of art where you're just telling a story and like you don't have to go you know, read a novel or you don't have to like 
go necessarily watch a movie. Sometimes just drawing it out, it, it's its own powerful thing. And I, I remember at a young age, it really drew me in. Like, and especially with this genre, as I mentioned, like I grew up reading a lot of Jim Balance work, like both his Catwoman run and tarot series and you know probably not the best thing a nine-year-old should be reading (laughs) there there was just like a charm to it i can't really explain it the level of exaggeration makes it so powerful It, it made me realize that in comics and aside from technic technical rules there's really no rules you could do whatever you want if you want to draw a character with like pounds and pounds of patches, pouches all over them, I love like Rob Liefeld, you can do that. If you want to make a character who wields a, a, a gun really twice the size of them, you can. If you want to make a character a waiter at some diner in the, on planet Mars, you can. There's no, there's, there's no one telling you you can't in comics. I think that's the most powerful aspect of it. And seeing from a young kid, aspiring creator to a professional now, it it still goes on. And I think that's why comics have been adored and have this charm to it all this time is because there's no right or wrong reason. I think you're doing something wrong if you're really looking into the logistics of comics. You know, it doesn't have to always make sense or it doesn't always have to follow like a real life standpoint. Like sometimes you just want to have fun with it. That's the most powerful part for me, being able to express that. And I feel like I'm not necessarily being held back. And I think that's the, the, the beauty of working in comics. I think that's the beauty of comics in general. So what's your creative kryptonite? I guess like personal tastes, like I I think that the kryptonite to it all is, you know, I think we live in a time today where I think people are trying to fight that aspect of having the creator have full creative control over what they're working on. And I think people forget that, especially from like indie creators, they're going to do what they want regardless. Uh, So I guess sometimes fans want the creator to feed into their needs versus the opposite way where the, the original standpoint to why you became a fan of someone's work in the beginning, because you love their work. But um, I, I think fans feel like it, they, they, they pressure the artist now to give in to like fan service and all that stuff. And, and not intentionally, I think people just unironically try and take some of that creative control away from the creator and I think that's the kryptonite here in my opinion where you know and that's why it's been such a blast working with Sonoba because even though Sam's the writer like him and I are the co-creators of the book we have full creative control if I don't like something that Sam wrote I will let him know if I need if I uh, feel like this page could be laid out a little different I let him know like I, I think Because him and I both have a vision for this. And I think we take so much pride in it where, you know, we're not feeding into people. As weird as it sounds, we're we're just taking full control here. And I think the kryptonite, like I mentioned earlier, I think I noticed that with some creators, they feel a little shackled because they feel like they lost some of that control. At what point are we good enough? 
Oh, that is an amazing question. That's like a loaded question, too. <laughs> At what point are we good enough? As creators, I think we are good enough when our story leads into other stories and when we aren't afraid to write our endings. I think when we, when we know our story is over and we want to put it down and just lay that at the feet of our readers, I think from a writing perspective, that's important. The other thing when we're good enough is when we are humble enough to know that we still have to work to improve. And I think that when we recognize that, we almost have that Socratic epiphany where, you know, what I know is that I know nothing. I think holding on to that uh, is, is really the first step in getting us to be good enough because uh, it encourages us to continue to push our boundaries, push our, our capabilities to learn, to grow. That's how we get there. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Uh, another thing I like to add, I feel like knowing that when you're good enough is, I guess from a marketing perspective is when you have like, and it's weird because I value this more than, you know, what I want 40,000 plus fans of my work. Absolutely. But I remember getting really good advice from one of my clients that I color for. Uh, she, she basically said something along the lines of, and this was at the time when I was working on web comics a lot because she had a really successful web comic. She co-created Pixie Tricks comics. Her name is Giselle Legacy, and she's a phenomenal, phenomenal person. Like I, I've I, had her on the show before. She's amazing. Uh, I recently just wrapped up a story with her, and I remember her saying this really good advice. You know, ideally, you you wish you could have like you know forty, fifty thousand active followers, and you can make all your money and run to the bank. You're golden, but you know, sometimes that's not always the case, but when you know your book is successful, your product is successful, is if you have like 500 consistent people who are willing to pay money for pretty much whatever you do, like if you make a sketch or if you make character sheets, if you want to, you put out a new issue of Brain of Ages, or if you put out a new uh, art book, if you have like that small following of people who you know will guarantee buy the product that speaks more value than the 40,000 fans that you don't know if they're just in it just to see from afar what you're doing or see they might buy something from you they might not but I think to me that's that's when you know you're good enough just ask any artist there's a level of self-deprecation they have with their own work they're ne we're never going to think we're good enough but there are things that kind of prove that ideology wrong and i think i think that aspect and it's the most humbling aspect too when you have that like 500 to a thousand people that you know will always buy something from you i think that speaks immensely and i think that's also what kind of helps knowing that you you're doing okay you're doing good i do have a, a good enough moment that I want to remind Nick of. I mean, this is a, a moment where I felt, I actually felt good enough um, as a publisher. Uh, we had the uh, Garden State Comic Fest in, last summer, uh, 2021. And Nick was there with his artist table and uh, about 50 feet away was Fernando Ruiz. And we had the Sonopa table literally across the venue. And we had a, uh, 
a father and daughter who, who came over to the Snopa table and they had picked up 47 Furious Tales issue two uh, through the Kickstarter. They, they really enjoyed it, but they, they uh, wanted to get the, the two variants. Well, we happened to have one of the variants was illustrated by Fernando Luis and colored by Nick Capone. Uh, Lexi and I had signed that as the, 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 the interior artist and the writer. And then I said, you know, Fernando did this cover. He's here and so is Nick. And Nick probably remembers this. I walked with these folks over to where Fernando was and they got Fernando to sign the book and then walked them over to where Nick was and Nick signed the book. And just for, for just that moment to, you know, be able to touch base with people who were enjoying this and to introduce them to the people who really brought this, this together and made it special. Um, I, I really felt good enough at that moment. And then I knew I still had to improve certainly in every aspect, but those, those little moments like that, that can, that can fuel that internal fire for, you know, years to come. Cause I, I, I hope I never forget that feeling. Yeah. Like it's a level of star power I feel. And, you know, I, I constantly remind Sam this always. And I, I have been uh, with Sonoma for like, almost five years and seeing the huge turnaround we made in the past few years has been incredible. And it's so deserving, uh, especially Sam, like feeling that way and in a positive way, like, though I feel good now, like the people are now speaking. And I think it, we really truly made an incredible like product with Sonopa. Sonopa is like a, like a superstar of a company now in my eyes. Like, I think that's, also, I feel like an I made it moment or like I'm good enough moment. We, we put out incredible products and fans and, you know, the followers seem to be really, really enjoying it. That alone is such a rewarding feeling, even on my end, on the art end, seeing the amount of people who really love what we're doing with Reign of Ages. It's, it's like one of the best feelings ever. Here I am, like working on pages, being like, ah, oh, this, this face is wonky and all like all this you know, at the end of the day, the fans would be like, I just love everything about this book. And I'm, it's, mm -hmm. it's that that's such a reassuring feeling. Yeah. And we've actually got an illustration that Nick Capone did for one of the Sinopa omnibuses of, uh, of an elf with a unicorn that uh, was used in that book and also in merchandise. And we had donated several of those to local child facilities. So if you go into the uh, kindergartens and the first grades and the daycares uh, around Frankfort, Kentucky, you have, you see these 18 by 24 inch posters of Nick Capone's art uh, just there to brighten up the kid's day. You know, also uh, there's a piece by Kelsey Cohen in, in these, in these places too. And, and being able to bring a little bit of life and light and color into kids' lives and um, get them exposed to, uh, you know, a little more beauty, a little more magic in their lives, I think is, is, is important. And I think that um, we keep trying to be good enough, but those, those are real big feel good moments. Um, before I get into the last four questions, is there anything that I haven't touched upon that you'd like to showcase those that are watching and listening to this interview? Well, well, well there, there is a spoiler with the cover cover. A is a bit of a spoiler because it gives away the villain. It gives away the villain that actually causes rain to miss centuries. Um, and if you look at it, you'll see there's a Medusa there and she's bringing the sword down. And if you look at her legs, her legs are already starting to turn to stone. And so that's, that's the big spoiler. If you want the big spoiler, she passes centuries 
having been turned to stone by this Medusa that she was bringing the blade down on. And in the book, you'll actually see the head roll clear and fall with the eyes open and just catching a full glare of, of, of rain. And it's almost like that original clash of Titans moment from the seventies where they hold the head up and they, they turn the, uh, the monster into, uh, into a stone statue that collapses only rain doesn't fall apart. And so that's, that's the, the ages that pass while she's trapped in stone. I hope I didn't spoil it for you too bad though. Now you have your, no, no, no. I, I saw the cover. I love the cover. Now, the cover amazing. now you have your spoiler moment, right? <laughs> well, it's the first one of 2022. So that works out well. <laughs> All right, but there's, there's so much more than that in this book though. Yeah. Everyone has one person that inspired them on their path to where they are today. Who was that for you? Oh, <laughs> uh, man, that artistically, I don't think I would be anywhere if it weren't for uh, Fernando Ruiz. Because uh, growing up, I had him as a, a instructor, both as a Saturday class student, which I teach now, I and also as an instructor, as the full-time program, but I've been exposed to Fernando's work since I was like 10 or, you know, I've, I've had him at numerous points in my life so far as an instructor, and um, I proudly consider him a mentor. I go to him for, you know, art advice sometimes, uh, certain things to talk to him about with regarding art. He, he's just, he's, he's just an incredible draftsman, and studying his work he, you know at, at that young age he got me into archie comics exposed to the world of archie dan DiCarlo, carlo uh, montana like all the old school archie artists and fernando and dan parent and you know it kind of made me want to pursue art that was like that i loved the, the storytelling that fernando was doing specifically and even as a teacher he was always just so specific and he made things so clear on a surface level. You ask yourself, why did I think it was this hard? Fernando did it in like 0.2 seconds and made it super clear and easy. To this day, he still blows my mind with everything he does. I've looked up to him since day one and I don't think I would have gone to the Kubert school if there wasn't that influence from him. And I don't think I really would have gotten artistically where I am if it weren't for Fernando. So I, I always proudly say like, he was always one of my favorite teachers. I've only had him for two years as a, a Kubert student. I had my first year, my third year. I, I'm always going to be a Fernando fan. It's one of my most prominent moments that I really felt like I've made it where books and titles that I worked with him. Like I remember when I, my first uh, book I did with Giselle was an Eerie Cuties book. Fernando was working on Incredible. I think that was around the time when they introduced Incredible. He was seeing the colors I was doing over Giselle and he approaches me one day and we both work at the Hubert school. So like he approaches me down the hallway. He's like, he looks at me. I look at him. Hey, Fernando. And he's like, what's your color schedule looking like? I'm like, I'm open. Like, why? He's like, can you color a Jetta story for me? <laughs> In that exact tone too. Uh, Jetta was that old famous uh, 
uh, Dan DeCarlo character, but uh, they were doing a Jetta book for their Die Kitty Die Kickstarter, and he asked me to color his story. And to me, I I was like screaming of excitement on the inside, but I was like trying to keep it cool. That was when I realized, you know, I I'm, I was proud. I'm proud to have him as a mentor, but I'm also really honored to just be in his presence uh, professionally and also as a colleague and a friend. So. I definitely say, like, if there was anyone who inspired me throughout my art journey, I definitely would say Fernando. Like, and I feel like when you see in, like, Reign of Ages, I feel less, there are, like, certain Fernando-isms I do. It's more Archie-isms, but, you know, being a product of loving Archie comics, working for Giselle, working with Fernando, there's, like, this weird ism that, like, and I, and sometimes I call Fernando-isms, but there's, there's little aspects that I, I learned over the years through Fernando that I kind of implemented in Reign of Ages. So, you know, I, I always thank him. He's like one of my inspirations and my mentor. So the inspirations are varied and, and many. And I know we covered a couple in the last interview, so I'll try and cover mm-hmm. some that we we didn't bring up then. Um, with, with comics, um, of course the big ones are people like, you know, Brian Polito and, um, Billy Tushy. And then of course you have the legendary Neil Gaiman and, um, Amanda Connor and Jimmy Palmiotti, these giants, um, that, um, have done so much with storytelling and, and art over the years. Oh, well, let's not forget the, the, the ElfQuest series and Heavy Metal Magazine and all these, these cool, cool creations that really provide us such really strong, bold female adventuring characters. Michael Turner, Linzer. I mean, these are the folks who really took in, in their time, showed strength in the feminine form, sexuality and uh, intelligence and uh, just strength in really every, every aspect that human beings can be strong. And they told stories of adventure and they told stories of tragedy and they told uh, stories that would make you laugh and bring you joy and make you smile and sometimes bring a tear to your eye. And so we, we, it's, it's just like people say in, in the sciences, we stand on the shoulders of giants and, you know, we, we try to reach a little higher because they lift us up with what they've done before. No. And to add to that too, like, I know Sam mentioned Michael Turner and stuff, but we actually were talking about this last night, you know, and it's not a Trinity because there was like a group of dudes in the nineties who produced, you know, image and all these great comics. But in that, in that click, I like to call it, you know, you have Jim Lee, Mark Silvestri, Michael Turner, Rob Liefeld, Tom McFarlane, like all those people. Michael Turner was definitely, I was, I was introduced to Turner's work late in life, sadly, but growing up, really what stood out to me the most was definitely Mark Silvestri. He was kind of like an inspiration. And even Jim Ballant, like really was that inspiration for that 90s bad girl genre that I learned to really appreciate and love throughout the years. So I don't think I would be anywhere without the influence of those artists today as well. (laughs) From a professional standpoint, you both are successful, not only as a publisher, but as an artist and as a co-creators of this particular series. And you've done many other works, of course, in your past lives as well that have provided that you are truly professionally successful. Do you consider yourselves personally successful? I, I personally do because even from a perspective, even just coloring, like I started from the ground up 
you know, the school helped me in so many things. I am the first person, I even tell my students this, I screwed up at my time at the Hubert School. I didn't take things necessarily serious and I didn't really go out of my way to make connections or network. And by the time when I graduated, I was kind of in a bad spot, but I kind of really rose from that. And I really, I took huge strides to get where I am and to network. And now it's like, it's nothing like that doesn't exist anymore. I'm in a, such a more successful place now. And my big, I made it moment definitely was when I worked with Giselle. Fernando actually introduced me to Giselle's work when we were a student. And the biggest successful moment for me, at least, was when, I, I'll never forget it. I worked with Taylor Esposito. He's the letter on the book. and He's a really acclaimed guy. He goes to me one day. He's like, oh, you mentioned you're a fan of Giselle's, right? I'm like, yeah. And he was learning Giselle's stuff at the time. And he goes, she's looking for a colorist. And if you want, I could, you know, have her come your way if you want. Like I could put in a good word. And me choking up on the inside, I'm like, oh my God, like getting really nervous. And like, uh, not even an hour later, I get a message from Giselle. And that's where the relationship started. And, you know, she's like, look, I'm, I'm reviving Eerie Cuties after like a five-year hiatus. And would you like to holler it? That right there was the I made it moment. That's where I knew I, I'm, I became successful because if you asked me three years or four years prior to that, I was literally nothing. So uh, hard work really paid off. And that was my big success story. And it only gets better and better. Like I'm always grateful working with Giselle. She's incredible to work with and all the other. And like, then I broke into image. I broke into dynamite and I have a relationship with them as well. And it's all, it's all so humbling. And I, I'm very grounded by it. I could probably say, those were the reasons for my success. And now with Sonopa and Reign of Ages, like this is like my first book that I've penciled and inked because, you know, ironically, people always, they, they never technically look at colorists and think, wow, they could draw. They, they, I thought they just color. I like to break that stigma because it's not the case at all. A lot of colors can draw. A lot of colors can draw phenomenal. I, I like to like show people that I don't just color. I also illustrate and tell stories. That alone, another successor for me. Now that I'm officially not only a published colorist, but now I'm going to be a published artist, I think that's very rewarding. That's how I know that I, I'm successful at what I do. And I'm really proud and humbled by it. <laughs> Personal successes are probably my best personal successes are the way my children are, are coming up. As a publisher, I like the fact that Sonopa is growing and my ambition to have something that I can leave to my kids is, is a huge driving force. But I'll tell you the success of it started to kind of hit me when I was uh, in New Jersey getting ready for a convention, visiting a uh, sleeping uh, extra room at one of the artist's place. And on that artist's bookshelf was a, uh, a collection of books that she had done with Sonopa. And it was this thick. <laughs> and I'm like, we, we started Sonopa in 2017, and she's got like nine books on the shelf, you know, that has her work in it. And then we, we actually, I actually handed her another one that she, had, uh, she hadn't gotten yet because I carried it up with me. When you look at folks who have so much talent 
you know, you, you crowdfund it and you, you, you pay them, you know, real money that makes a real difference in their life that, you know, helps pay the bills and keep the lights on. And when you get stuff published and when you are, you know, talking to comic shops and they're like, Hey, is there any chance that we can get Christian Martinez to come down and, you know, sign copies of whispers of Persephone? Is there any chance we can get Tony Ojeda to, you know, come down and sign death comes to Glenn follows there any chance we can get Nick Capone to come down when, when we've got reign of ages or please for love of God, get, come on down here with uh, Alexia. Cause we've got, you know, everyone who wants 47 furious tales. That feels like a pretty big success. I do get some criticism because I constantly reinvest the revenue from the company and the other projects. So, you know, we don't sit on like mountains of cash, but you know what we do is um, our people get paid according to their agreements. And I think that's a, a very big deal. It's very important because I have lost track of the times I've heard people complain that they were waiting six or eight months from other companies to pay them. And we just don't do that. You know, crowdfunding makes that possible for us, you know, because we are still a very small company selling a, a thousand books, um, a thousand comics. Doesn't really generate as much revenue as you might think, but it's a hell of a good start. <laughs> I would like to see us uh, grow to where we're putting out books that are doing 5,000 and 10,000 copies. And I think that my, my next big milestone success is going to be uh, shipping Reign of Ages in February because people are pretty blown away that we're going to have this book done in just a couple of days. Uh, Taylor Esposito is going to be getting files probably tonight to start lettering and um, be ordering books probably on the 25th of this month so that we can ship them next month. All we need is uh, the folks who are enjoying our work to come out and get their copies, the shops who are supporting us to get their pledges in. And we're working every day to make that happen so uh, which is another thing thanks for having us for this because that makes a huge difference for us helping to get to our goal and it makes it makes a difference in a lot of people's lives we keep people uh employed project to project we don't have like full-time employees other than you know me i make about a dollar a year <laughs> <laughs> not not counting getting to travel to conventions and stuff that that's a that's a big perk i think the big success is when I look and we go into the, the work group that we have set up on social media and we're like, hey, we've got these projects that are coming up. We've got people for this. And we've got other people who are looking for folks to do this, this, or that. And so we're really good about putting people who've been working with Sonopa together with other people who are doing paying gigs as well. Not as an agency or anything, but just as a, a common courtesy to other creators. And so it's good to see people who are able to make art in between Sonopa projects for other, you know, paying, paying indie, indie work. That's always, always good to see. The reverse of success is failure. How do you deal with your failures? That's a great question because here's how you deal with failure. You learn from it. You analyze what went wrong. You then make the changes you need to correct that. Then you go over your plan again and you execute until you succeed. We've had uh, failures, for example, on our crowdfunding campaigns, funded and fulfilled 14 crowdfunding campaigns since 2017. But we've had a handful that have failed. And what we do is we turn around, we reformulate, we you know, it put more money from sales of other products into the project to help bring uh, goals down and we relaunch and we make it happen. And so the, the thing I like to tell people is you only have actually failed 
once you stop trying. So just don't stop trying. Keep working on it. I wholeheartedly agree with everything Sam said. You're, the only way you're going to really overcome failure is addressing it. Don't let it stop you. Like the amount of times like I failed uh, to get where I am is, you know, a few times, but I, I, I wouldn't let it bother me. Like I would more so look at it through a perspective where what can I do better? And that's why as artists specifically, you always should be open to constructive criticism. Talk to people, talk to fellow like artists and talk to editors and talk to uh, prof- like working professionals like yourself. It's like, what am I doing that I could do better? It comes to a point where you can, you know, let them all talk and let them say what's wrong. But if you don't apply that, you're really just like, like kicking a dead horse. Like you, like that's how you get stuck in failure. Like you're not, you're not allowing growth. And I think once you allow growth is when you're going to start seeing better outcome. You look at your failures, just like something just to like laugh about like, Oh yeah, I did this like five years ago. I don't know why I did it, but you know, you're not there anymore. So you should never be afraid of failure. You just have to just keep getting up and trying again. The younger generation is looking at your work and they're becoming inspired to be creative in their own way, whether they want to become a writer or an artist or whatever they'd like to do creatively. How can they inspire the generation that follows them? By being absolutely faithful and true to their own vision so that people who truly appreciate who they are as a creator will find, discover, and uplift their work. I think that when you try to be something that you aren't, um, certainly it's, it's more difficult. But I think that it, it, it has a tendency to wear on you and make things more laborious than they need to be. Whereas when you're telling the stories you want to tell, when you are enjoying it, then, well, yeah, it's still work. It's a joyous effort. Having that drive, I think that's what will carry on the legacy and just that inspiration. I, I always tell people, and, and like, there's, it's nothing against the, these companies, but like, I think for a while there was a stigma that if you weren't in the big two, if you didn't strive to work for the big two, meaning like Marvel, DC, that you're you're better off not even pursuing comics and I, to me that's the biggest crock of bs if you ask me and i think we're, we're seeing that shift of people doing a lot of indie work a lot of creator-owned stuff a lot of other companies like working for them and i think it's really opening eyes for a lot of people even the upcoming generation where it's not going to be the case anymore like you don't have to feel like feel pressured to work for only these two companies when there's so much you're exposed to. I, I think that the drive and just people want to see how you draw, not how you draw like a certain artist or how you don't want to be a carbon copy of another artist or strive to be like that because there's not, there's no originality like that. People want to see what you're capable of because if they, if they wanted that other artist you're aspiring to be, they would go read that other artist stuff. So I, I think that's being passed along a lot. And I think you're seeing more and more authentic artists, which I really love and enjoy seeing. Well, I do hate to say it, but that ends this particular episode of Two Geeks Talking. Sam and Nick, I greatly appreciate you both coming on the show. It was a pleasure having Joy you. Joy to be here, man. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for having me. This was, this was incredible. I, I love this, this talk. <laughs>
Well, that just means I have to have you both Thank on you so in the much. future as well, too. So that that's uh, a wonderful to see. I can't wait to see what you both come up with, either individually or together. And uh, it'll be uh, amazing to see what, what else, of course, Sonopa Publishing comes up with. And I'm sure you both will be on in the future. But before I let you both go, where can we find you? How can we find the Kickstarter? Speaking of which, which we know, I didn't ask, when is the Kickstarter? When does it end? Where can we find it? And how can we support you on social media? Certainly. The Kickstarter is live now. Uh, today is, as of this recording, January the 8th. And it is live until January 28th. It is Reign of Ages, issue one. All of the tiers do include shipping within the 50 United States. International backers, it will append a, an additional amount for postage. Um, there are um, some really easy tiers. Like if you just want the digital copy, it's only $3. If you want just the the, the, the mass production cover, which is beautiful work by Ashley wilson -Ev, uh, that's 15 And again, that includes your shipping. And if you haven't read 47 Furious Tales yet, you can also add on copies of 47 Furious Tales in the Pledge Manor to manage to get those shipped with you as well. So we want you to have a, a joyous reading experience and I uh, hope you'll come out and support it, help us get to goal. We are shipping rewards in February, just a few weeks from now. So you, this isn't a campaign that you'll be waiting, you know, six, seven, eight months. Or no, no, you're going to be waiting just a couple of weeks and then your uh, books will be in the mail. Aside from the where to find the Kickstarter, we're always promoting it online. And I know on my Instagram, which is at Nick Capone Art, uh, I've been promoting it. And you also get a glimpse of some little sneak peeks from the story that aren't really... Uh, that are more subtle, so I'm not giving anything away, but you get to see a little bit of a, a sneak peek on, on that end. Also, some of my coloring stuff as well. But yeah, uh, and then as Sam mentioned, the, the Kickstarter is live for another, what, 21 days? And, uh, 20, 20 days, yeah, we're down to oh, 20, 20 days. days. So, uh, and we're making incredible progress, and I, I'm, I'm very thankful uh, for everyone who backed, everyone who's seen this campaign. Now it's all in the hands of, you know, getting the art done and getting into the letter. And hopefully we will get a great outcome of this Kickstarter. And hopefully you guys get to see a physical copy of Rain of Ages. Yep. Shouldn't be too much longer now at all. I mean, we're talking like what Monday or Tuesday, the last inking will be done. And so, yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> just two, two, three days from now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, like I said, uh, thanks for coming on the show. I greatly appreciate it. That ends this particular episode of Two Geeks Talking. You can, of course, find this interview on our website, tgtmedia.com or twogeekstalking.com. And, of course, uh, on our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash c forward slash tgtmedia. And as I say every week, everyone has a story to tell. It's up to me to help bring that up. Thanks for listening watching on Two Geeks Talking.